Amen, church. Before we continue in our time together, I want to invite you to recite along with me the Apostles' Creed together. It will be up on the screen. Beginning with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us this morning. My name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, man, it's an honor to have you all with us. It's an honor to be here with you. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit, just like I normally do before I preach, um, but let me tell you kind of where we're headed, and then I'll give you a couple of things. We're going to begin, and that's intentional, we're going to begin our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to look at two verses, verses 4 through 6. That's where we're going to start our time. That's kind of our launching pad uh, for several other scriptures that we're going to jump into. So we're going to see how, how well, how quickly you know your Bible. And so as you're turning there, I've got a couple of things for you. Uh, the first one is we have this gift for you all. This is a book called Affirming the Apostles' Creed uh, by uh, the theologian. His name is J.I. Packer. I love J.I. Packer. Uh, I'll read pretty much anything this guy uh, writes. Uh, this is our gift to you. Um, they're in the back at the Connect desk. So after service or sneakily during service, if you'd like to go grab one, that is for you. Uh, however, we do have limited uh, copies. So if, if you dig it, then, then you should probably go now. Um, but that's, that's for that. So that's our gift to you. Uh, the next thing I have for you is, and I'll just set this down here. Uh, the next thing I have for you is... Um, over the next couple of weeks, or better yet, let me, let me, let me back up. Uh, part of my job is to equip and also develop, in particular, preachers. A couple of weeks ago, you guys got to hear and see Nathaniel kind of walk you through the ending of our time in, uh, in uh, the sermon series, Revival. He did a phenomenal job with that. Uh, in addition to that, one of the other things I want to do and I'm going to be doing is inviting other preachers from churches that we not just uh, have partnered with, uh, but that we support. Because I ultimately, ultimately, I want you guys to see who we support. I want you to get to know them, but I also want, I also want you to meet my friends. And so um, I'm going to invite some of those men uh, in the next couple of weeks. So you're going to get to meet some of them. One is from uh, Southeast Austin. He's planting a church. And then another one is from San Antonio. Uh, he's the lead pastor at the Well Community Church. And so anyway, all that being said, over the next couple of weeks, as we walk through the Apostles' Creed together, you're going to get to meet a couple of other preachers, which I think is fairly cool. Uh, with that being said, if you're new thankful that you're here. We have connect cards on the chairs. Fill one out, drop it in the offering basket. We'd love to hang out. Uh, if you need a Bible, those are also in those rows. That's our gift to you. Just gifts, gifts upon gifts upon gifts today. Uh, take that with you. Bless someone, or if you don't have one, if you don't have a Bible, that is, please take it with you. As I mentioned, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter Eight. Uh, again, if you're just joining us, this is week two as we walk through the Apostles' Creed. If you're curious as to why we are walking through the Apostles' Creed, I would encourage you to listen to last week's sermon to get a little bit more details. Uh, but uh, in short, uh, one of the reasons that we are walking through the Apostles' Creed is because it is a summary of the Christian faith. It is a summary of what Christians believe. This is uh, something that is very core to who we are and, again, to what we believe. Uh, and so some of that will come up in our time. But again, if you want some more detail regarding the why behind the Apostles' Creed, I would encourage you to listen to last week's uh, sermon or visit our Facebook page where there's a, there's a blog post by the Gospel Coalition that we shared earlier this week. Um, I think that's all I have. I think I went pretty fast. I've also, you know, taken down a lot of coffee 
So I'm speaking fast, man. Like, I'm sorry. But uh, uh, let's go, right? 1 Corinthians, beginning uh, chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. I'm going to read this again. This is just where we're going to start. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. Uh, this is where we'll start, and then uh, and we'll dive into our time. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes, beginning in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are all things and through whom we exist. Let me pray, and then we'll begin. God, as we come before you uh, in our time of worship, Lord, I pray that we would come before you with open ears uh, and that we come before you with hearts that are ready to receive your word. As a result, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in us, that you would be present among us, and that you would be at work in us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would set me aside, and that it would be you working through the minds and hearts of my brothers and sisters who are here, and of those who are curious about you. God, as we walk through this Apostles' Creed, uh, and as it takes us back to your word, once again, I pray that it would glorify you, and that it would ultimately make much of you, and that it would be for our good and benefit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So today, we're going to look at the second part, or a second piece of the Apostles' Creed. Last week, I preached on two words. A couple of friends were like, that was a lot for two words. I preached on, I believe. And we saw last week how weighty those two words are. This week, we're going to expand it a little bit, but I would be remiss if I didn't say that even though we're expanding what we're going to be talking about, it is still a large chunk. There's a lot of, uh, oh, what could I say? There's, there's, It's a densely packed statement, right? So as we continue our series, here's where we find ourselves. This is where the creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's a loaded statement, right? Even even if we read it just kind of briefly and casually, and, and, and if you have any experience even with the Apostles' Creed, you're like, yeah, I affirm that. But when we slow things down, that is a very loaded statement. And so I'm going to do my best to unpack a couple of things. But before doing that, we need to walk through a couple of things, Okay. Before we zoom in on the fact that the creed tells us who God is and what God has done, before we get there, I want to focus on a few things. And, and I want us to focus on these things by me asking you a question. Now, this isn't the kind of question that in, sermon, or in sermons previous to this where I would ask the question and then I would unpack it so that we can walk through it together. This is the kind of question that I'm just going to ask you that I want you to chew on. This is something that you're going to, I would hope, chew on this morning. You might chew on it at lunch, maybe when you start discussing a couple of things throughout the week. But here's the question. When you think of God, what do you think? When you think about God, what is it that you think? See, the answer to this question is incredibly important. It's important because this answer ultimately shapes how you live. It shapes how you worship. And if you have any convictions, it ultimately shapes those convictions. As a result, I want you to know a simple truth. That whether you belong to Jesus or don't, I want you to know a simple truth. And the truth is that we become what we worship. We become what 
we worship. See, the Bible teaches us that there is one God. That there is one God who exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is, one divinity, distinct in relationship, and diverse in role and in function. You want to learn more? Go to Ephesians 1. The opening line about God and the Apostles' Creed is crucial because it's not ambiguous. In other words, the Apostles' Creed, if I scroll back up, right? The Apostles' Creed doesn't just say, I believe in God, and then skips over to the Holy Catholic Church. The Apostles' Creed is not ambiguous about who God is. In fact, it introduces us to the Holy Trinity, beginning with the Father. That's specific. That's done very intentionally. And so the opening line of this creed tells us a lot about who God is, and it tells us about what God has done. It tells us that God is Father, that He is Almighty, and that He is Creator. And those are three characteristics that we're going to be examining in just a couple of minutes. In regards to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, what we're going to do is get specific, or really we're just going to narrow our focus into a bigger argument that Paul is having with the church in Corinth about food and idolatry. Uh, We're going to narrow in our time on just a couple of things. And so if you would go back to 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to walk through a couple of things. All of this falls under the question I asked. When you think about God, what do you think? And then we become what we worship. We're going to expand upon that question and that thought when we look at 1 Corinthians 8. Beginning in verse 4, here's what I want you to see. Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. What Paul is doing in this bigger argument, and as we bring it down just to look at some, uh, just to look at some specific things, as we bring it down, what Paul is saying is that he's agreeing with the Corinthians. He's saying, yes, I agree, you guys are right, there is no such thing as idols, or idols have no real existence, and there is only one God. Don't worry, I'm going to keep going, it'll add some substance to what we're about to talk about. I like what Paul says when he says, we know that an idol has no real existence. We're going to talk about idols in just a moment, because the reality is idols still exist, or people still worship idols. What Paul is saying when he writes that an idol has no real existence, he's ultimately saying that idols don't have any power. That they don't exist because they have no authority. They have no power. They're inconsistent. They're ultimately not God. Because at the end of the day, there is only one God. And so he continues in verse 5. And those of you who love sarcasm and wittiness, you can hear the undertone of that in verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as as indeed there are many gods and many lords, what Paul is doing is he's taking a nice jab to the Corinthians. Just like he's going to take a nice jab to us. He's taking a jab to the Corinthians and he's challenging them in light of their beliefs just as he's going to challenge you and I in a moment. Because when we look at the context of 1 Corinthians, he's referring to Greco-Roman culture. Right? You're thinking about like, if you think about Greek gods, well, what are they? I don't even know, man. There's, there's, what, there's Helios, that's a CrossFit gym. There's Hades, right? Uh, that's the guy from a cartoon. Uh, Hercules, no, that guy's like... He's like Mexican-American, like he's two, right? (laughs) So anyway, nevertheless, we have to some degree some understanding of Greek mythology. And so Paul is challenging their culture and their idols. Now, you and I might read that and we might laugh and we might say, ha, well, I don't believe in Greek mythology and that's funny. We could look at all the movies and we could rewatch Gladiator about how he prays to the gods and all of this stuff. But the truth is, as much as he is challenging them in their day, God through Paul is challenging you and I 
because there are still modern-day idols that you and I may still struggle with. We just may not call them Hades or, uh, I don't know the other ones, I'm not going to lie, right? They might not have a cool name, but they do have maybe authority in our lives, or they, you, we want them to have authority in our lives. Some of the modern-day idols that you and I could look at could be anything like money. It could be power. It could be family. It could be relationships. It could be substances. And here's the thing. I want to be brief because we've got a lot of things to talk about. Just because your thing isn't on that list does not mean it's not an idol. At the same time, idols have implications. I want you to listen to the theologian G.K. Beale. He writes, What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. I'll say it one more time. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. And so when we look at this small general list about idols, they have implications. For instance, if you idolize money, you might say that you just want to be financially stable. That you are in the pursuit of security. But as a result, there is a ton of sacrifice that comes with that. Maybe you're pulling 80-hour weeks and neglecting your family, and then when this topic gets brought up, you are defensive and saying, I just want you to have nice things. Can't you see all that I'm doing? There's food on the table. There's roof over our heads. So it does something to you. It's not just this good thing in terms of financial stability, it is ultimately changing you. Maybe your thing is power. And the reason you idolize or pursue power is because you desire to be in control. You desire to exercise dominance over others. Perhaps your thing is family. Because that's just the quintessential picture that you have always had. That you graduated high school, you wrote in your daily journal what life would be like, you went to college, maybe you got your degree, and you got a good job, and as a result of getting a good job, now it's time to get married, and now that you're married, well now it's obviously time to have kids, and therefore family defines you in a way that joy should define you, but it doesn't because you're saying family is what completes me, this is ultimately what's going to define me. Maybe your thing is relationships, right? When it comes to relationships, you would never articulate the word, oh, codependency, because that's something uh, an addict would say. But you would use terms like security and dignity and worth and value because that person gives that to me. Caught you. Maybe it's substance abuse, like, like drugs. The fact that you, man, feel that you are uh, addicted to whatever. In this case, we're going to say drugs. You can insert your thing like, I don't know, you could insert video games. Whatever it is you want, you could insert this because they give you worth. They give you a sort of feeling. They give you a sort of high, something, again, that gives you value. You can go on and on and on. But here's what I would say, that whatever idol it is that you're struggling with, and if you're like, I really don't know, whatever it is that you're struggling with could be summed up with one question. Same thing, this is something I want you to chew on. And the question is, what is it that you're afraid of? What is it that you're afraid of? It's a simple question with an answer that nobody wants to talk about. Because that means we're going deep, right? What is it that you're afraid of? Maybe in the chaotic mess of pursuing financial stability, the reason you pursue financial stability is because you experience financial crisis at one time. And so, man, you're afraid of not having anything, of not leaving a legacy, perhaps. You're afraid of looking like a failure, 
If your thing is power, maybe it's because something in your past, whether recent or a long time ago when it comes to power, man, maybe you were just in such a chaotic environment where there was zero control and so many bad things were happening that you decided, man, I'm going to pursue this. And maybe you didn't articulate it that way. But as you pursued it, really the underlying thing is I just don't want things to get out of control like they once were. So if you would just do it the way I'm telling you to, things would be okay. Maybe when it comes to family or relationship, it's because you come from a broken family. Dads, maybe it's because the reason, uh, man, you really want to be a dad, you really want to be that cool dad, you really want to emphasize fatherhood, is maybe because your dad wasn't around. Maybe he was physically present, but he was emotionally absent. And so your mantra is, I'm just going to do things better than what my dad did, or I'm going to be the man he could never be. Whatever it is, the question is, what are you afraid of? What is it that you're afraid of? I want to submit to you that as we walk into this statement of God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we're going to unpack briefly those three characteristics. But we're going to spend most of our time talking about the fatherhood of God. The reason I think it is wise to spend uh, more time on the fatherhood of God is because as we walk through that, that is going to help enlighten our understanding of the sovereignty of God, and it's going to help us to enlighten our understanding of Him as Creator. And, because when we start talking about the fatherhood, nobody wants to listen. Right? Because that's a touchy subject. Or it might be, I should say that. It might be. Some of you may have had fathers who were awesome. That's great. That's, that's a blessing. Man, I pray that they reflected uh, Christ to you. That's great. And then there are many others, right, that when we begin, we begin to talk about fatherhood, and in particular the fatherhood of God, it's a little touchy, don't want to get too vulnerable, and we're exposing the condition of our heart. So that's what we're going to do. I want you to go to Romans 8 as we look at the fatherhood of God. We're going to look at one verse. This is what Paul says. This is Romans 8, verse, we're going to go 15, and I might keep going. All right, here we go. Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I want you to listen to uh, J.I. Packer, the writer of the book that we're hooking you all up with. This is what he says. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Say that one more time, because it was convicting to me during the week, and I hope it convicts you. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Repeatedly in the Gospels, Jesus speaks about his relationship with the Father. It's kind of obvious to say that he uses relational language. So what I want you to know, where I want you to be encouraged is that if you belong to Jesus, then you have that same relationship and access to the Father. If Jesus is the Son of God by nature, then we are sons and daughters 
by grace. If you don't know what grace is, we're going to define that as undeserving favor from God toward sinners. I want you to think about it. It is the grace of God, that undeserving favor, that has adopted you into the family of God. And as a result, your status has changed. That you went from lost to found, orphan to adopted. Your status is now as sons and daughters. Further, this doctrine of adoption is specific for you. It's specific for you, the Christian. That God has chosen you. That God has adopted you all through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. That we are united to God through Christ. That means you get the kind of access that a lot of other people don't. I was thinking about this this week. Earlier this week, uh, my son had a couple of friends over. And they were hanging out. And I think Chungo was in the bedroom. I can't remember. And I come out, and one of his friends has zero clue what to call me. He just, like, kind of, like, he freezes in fear. And then the other one calls me Mr. DeLeon, and he, and he calls me Mr. DeLeon with a cracked voice, right? And so as they are struggling to kind of communicate hello, right? As they're, as they're struggling to communicate that, Chango walks out and says, Dad, he cuts through that awkward tension of formality and gets my attention. That's an access that he has to me that those two homeboys don't. That's how it works with the Father. That if you belong to Jesus, you have access to the Father because of what Jesus has done. And if you have access, then you are a son and a daughter. And so you have an access to them, to him that cuts through any awkward formality when you cry out, Father. And that's for you. No one can take that away from you because he is the one that's giving you that status. He is giving you that status by grace. It wasn't something you did. It wasn't something that you tried to earn. It was a gift that he gave you through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And as a result, you are now united to him, which means you have access to him just the way Jesus did. And so you cut through that awkward tension, just like Seth's friends had. You cut through that tension just like he did when you say, Dad. Think about it, parents. If you've ever been in those formal conversations, maybe it's after church. Maybe it's when you have a barbecue. Maybe it's just when you have friends over and you keep talking to one another. And then your kid comes out and says, Mom. Right? It's a specific sound. It's a specific tone. Like you know your kid's voice. You know your children. The Father knows you. The Father knows your voice. The Father turns his attention to you. You have that. Not sometimes, not every once in a while, but you have that always. There's this phrase, I guess, that a lot of people use. I don't know if it's just something general or depending on the context of the conversation, they might mean something else. But one of the phrases, or a common phrase that I hear, is that we're all children of God. All of us. Yes and no. Right? That statement has implications. If you're like, man, he's going to get theological. Well, last week when we talked about I believe, we talked about the weightiness of that phrase. So, yes, because theology matters. Doctrine matters. What you believe matters. <clears throat> when it comes to the phrase... We're all children of God. To an extent, that's true. Yeah, we all are image bearers. Sure. And though we are image bearers, our relationship to God is distorted because of sin. So as a result, 
We are born into sin, which means that we rebel against God, that we run away from God, that we don't want to know who God is. We don't care who God is. We don't want to look to God. We don't want to think about God. And in his grace, kindness, and mercy saves sinners. Sinners go from being lost to found. They go from being orphans to adopted sons and daughters. They go from being unrighteous in their merit to righteous because of the merit of Christ. So when we say, man, we're all children of God, yes, in the sense that we're image bearers, but it is only his children that can call him father. And in order to be a child, you must first come to know Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Think about it. J.F. Packer says that the doctrine of adoption is central to the gospel. Well, if it is central to the gospel, that is, that God in his love has adopted us into his family, as a result, what happens when we worship God? We are inevitably filled with more truth, with more joy, with love, but those things are results of what God has first done for us in Christ. That's the beauty of the doctrine of adoption. And so when we go back to the statement, man, we become what we worship. If you belong to God, what do you think that's going to look like? That you grow in truth, that you grow in love, that you grow in joy, that you have intimacy with God, a relationship with God. But those things are results of who we are in Christ because of His work done for us. Being filled with truth, joy, and love are results of our identity. And what's our identity? Sons and daughters. As a result of our status, I want you to go back to Romans 8. This is what Paul says, right? Verse 16. Or better yet, let me go verse 15. For you did not receive, yeah, here we go. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What does it look like for the Christian to operate as a son or daughter of God and not as a slave to fear? What does it look like? Got a couple things. And I would say, don't take notes on this, man. Just listen. Number one, when we rest in the spirit of adoption, we grow in our intimacy with God. We learn more about who we are, and we learn more about who He is. Some of you will hear that and be like, yeah, 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 I get that. Just let's move on to something else. How we grow in our understanding of who we are in Christ, how we grow in our understanding as sons and daughters begins with intimacy with God. One of the other markers is contentment with Christ or contentment in Christ. Another one is the ability to confess our sins. When we are resting in our status as sons and daughters to God, we have the ability, and I would say... uh, confidence, that's a good word, that we have our ability and we have confidence to confess our sins and weakness. That because we're a part of the family, we can be 100% honest. We can be 100% vulnerable. It's not like he doesn't know. But he's giving you access to him through the son. So you can spill it all on there. You can be brutally honest. You can be completely vulnerable. Confessing your sins and your weaknesses. Another marker is that a heavy reliance on the Holy Spirit. That all of this is possible. Even our relationship with God the Father through the Son came as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. 
And because we belong to God, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And finally, one of the markers, or one of the marks of us growing in our understanding as as sons and daughters to God is a growing victory over sin. When it comes through like one through four, everybody's all about that. Intimacy with God. Got it. What do you need me to do? Make a cup of coffee and read my journal. Okay. Contentment with Christ. What does it look like to be satisfied where I'm at, but complete because of Jesus? Okay. I can kind of mull over that. Ability and confidence to confess our sins and weakness. Okay. Yeah. You know, as long as it's in the dark corner of my house by myself and no one else around. Reliance on the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Okay. Sure, I'll have someone else do that for me. And then when it comes here, growing victory over sin, it gets really personal in that one. Because that has everything to do with the condition of your heart. And that's a, that's a, that's a marker in light of what you believe about God. Right? Right? <clears throat> The Father readily adopts us by grace. And it's a grace that has been satisfied by the Son on the cross. I want to come back to that in just a minute. Or better yet, let me keep going there. For the Christian, I pray that this brings you comfort and conviction, but comfort nonetheless. If you don't know who Jesus is, I pray that this is an invitation to come to know him so that you would have access to the Father, so that your heart would cry out, Abba, Father. All under the the realm of the fatherhood of God, let's now look to the sovereignty of God. Go to Psalm 93. Psalm 93 is only five verses, so I think I'll just read them all. Fairly short. And as I mentioned, I wanted to spend more time on the fatherhood of God. When it comes to the sovereignty of God and God as creator, I'm going to move a little quickly. Maybe. I don't know. I'll think about it. Here we go. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The, flood lift, uh, the floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Verse 5, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Once again, in light of Psalm 93 and in light of the sovereignty of God, I want you to listen to J.I. Packer. This comes directly from that book. He writes, Men treat God's sovereignty as a theme for controversy, but in Scripture it is a matter of worship. The sovereignty of God provides both hope and security. I think part of the reason the sovereignty of God brings tension into the room is because we don't have a good understanding of what it is and therefore we try to channel our own convictions onto others and then it just makes it awkward. But if you think about it, when we were talking about the sovereignty of God, well, better yeah, I'll come to that later. The sovereignty of God brings both hope and security. How? How does it bring hope and security? Well, for starters, God does not change. Think about that list of idols that we just walked through. Think about money. Man, there are highs, there are lows. Sometimes you got some cash, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you run out, maybe you just got paid. Whatever your thing is, it's always going to go up and down. You can say that about relationships You can say that about marriage. You can say that about power. You can say that about whatever it is you want. But when it comes to the person and work of God, he does not change. Ergo, he is faithful. I think about Jeremiah 31. I think he writes, 
I have called you with an everlasting love. I have kept my faithfulness to you. That speaks a lot about who God is and who we are. If the sovereignty of God brings tension, it's because something's up with you, not God. He does not change, therefore he's faithful. What else? He cannot be inconsistent. That's one of my favorite like, attributes and characteristics of God because I'm that spreadsheet guy, right? Like I love orderly things because it's right. And so when we're talking about this, God cannot be inconsistent because it goes against his character. Read through Exodus where he reveals who he is. It goes against his character. That God is both just and merciful. Not or, but and. Some of you love to talk about the mercy of God, but you don't want to talk about the justice part. Some of you love to talk about the justice of God, but you don't want to talk about the mercy because you just want to bring that hammer down. Let me tell you about that. You can't separate justice and righteousness. You can't separate it. So if you're going to be talking about the justice of God, you best make sure you're also talking about his righteousness. Another thing is that God is not and cannot be random. If we are looking at his sovereignty, then he cannot be random. He cannot be random. Now, some of you will even hear that. Well, I don't know. God hasn't answered this prayer. Just because he hasn't answered that prayer doesn't make him random. Maybe his answer is just no and you don't like it. Same thing, even if he said maybe or not yet, and you're like, man, God's not faithful. No, homie, you just didn't like the answer. That's just the bottom line. What's funny is a lot of the reform nerds, when they hear that, like, I don't really want to talk about this. The next one, when we're looking at the sovereignty of God, we could talk about free will. Oh, the question about free will. What about it? What? Well, can men choose? And what about the sovereignty of God? Or what about man's responsibility and the sovereignty of God? Yes. Yes. God didn't create us to be robots. I didn't force you to be here. You, cho- you got in your car. You came over here to listen to the word of God and some Mexican preach. Right? That's it. I didn't do any of this. And if you're asking me, like, where do you stand? Man, I believe that man can choose God as a result of what God has done in man first. <laughs> anyway. Number six. Restoration. That God can and will and is restoring all things according to his timing, his will, and his mercy. You don't believe me? If you belong to God, that is an act of restoration. Let's go back to it again. At one point, you were lost, you were an orphan, you were an enemy of God. And as a result of the Spirit regenerating your heart, you came to know God. And now you are a friend of God. You are a son or daughter to the Father. You are found. That's restoration. So He is restoring all things. The sovereignty of God, while mysterious ought to compel us to praise, ought to compel us to worship. It ought to compel us to pursue humility because you haven't figured it out. And if we pursue humility and fix our eyes on Jesus, we cannot help but look at him in worship and reverence and adoration. So the question is, what does your worship look like? What does your worship look like? 
And finally, the, excuse me, the third characteristic, the creator. God as creator. I only want to talk about two things here. The Westminster Catechism asks the question, what is man's chief end? And the answer, it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So as a result, I want to talk about two things regarding God as creator and us as created. I want to talk about God's glory, and then I want to talk about God's intentionality. When it comes to God's glory, here's the fundamental biblical truth Man is created in his image, not the other way around. Everything we do as a result of who we are ought to bring glory and reflect God. I said this months ago. You preach a sermon every day. I'm not talking about on Sunday where everybody's cool. I'm talking about Monday, you know, when you wake up and you're groggy and you need eight cups of coffee and then your coworker talks to you and that's the last thing you want to happen. That's what I'm saying. Right there, you're going to preach a sermon. Or when you and your spouse are about to go at it, you're going to preach a sermon. Everything we do as a result of who we are is to bring glory to God, is to reflect God and his character. Additionally, when it comes to the glory of God, we have been made stewards. That is that we care for what God has entrusted us with because it points back to him. So yes, you should care about stuff because it's godly. Number two, God's intentionality. I want to say a couple of things about it. When we look at the creation of man, when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, oh, how we wish we could go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Well, we can't because he's restoring all things, so we're moving forward. When it comes to God's intentionality, I think that's a beautiful thing. Thinking about God, not just as sovereign, not just as creator, but as father, demonstrates how intentional he was about creating man. Because the truth is, if creation, if the creation of man is simply a result of, of chance, then we are a side effect to the evolution of this universe. And life loses its purpose and beauty. That if we reduce our existence to chance, we're just a side effect. And life loses its purpose and beauty. The next thing is, is that if the creation of man is simply a side effect, then morality cannot be logically explained without pointing back to a source, a creator. The reason we can call murder bad is because of morality, and it drives us or points us back to a unique father creator. I almost got lost in those words. Say that one more time. If the creation of man is simply a side effect, then morality cannot be logically explained without pointing back to a source, a creator. We exist to bring God glory. Here's what I would close with. The doctrine of adoption is central to the gospel because it is through adoption by grace, through faith in Christ, that we become sons and daughters to God the Father. And so here are the three implications. Here are the three implications of that truth. The first one is that as a result of that, we worship God because of his love. That's that relational language regarding him as Father. There's something I really want you to be comforted by. And the fact that God is Father, it means that He knows you. That love He has for you is specific. It's not a blanket to cover things. It is specific for you as a result of what Christ has done for you. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. You have access to the Father through the work of the Son. Number two, we worship God because of his power. That's that sovereign grace that we were talking about right now. We worship God through his power because he exercises his power for flourishing and redemption, not oppression. 
And finally, we worship God because of his creativity. That the beauty of his creation inspires us with awe and beauty. That when you see that valley sunset, you know who to thank. That is why we worship God the Father. The Father readily adopts us by grace. A grace satisfied by Christ on the cross. So for the Christian, I pray that this brings you comfort. I pray that it brings you to conviction so that you would have confidence in the ability to confess your sin and your weakness before the Father because it's not like he's tripping. I pray that this would be a reminder of the grace you cannot earn, so stop trying to earn it. You got it. If you don't know who Jesus is, man, I hope that this is an invitation to come to know Jesus so that you would have access to a faithful, loving, trustworthy Father who loves his children and calls them by name. Let's pray. God, as we close our time, um, talking about fathers or fatherhood sometimes is a, a sensitive topic. It often makes us think of a, a number of things. I know it does for me. But Father, if we were to just take a moment and fix our eyes on your son and what you have done for us through him, my prayer is that we would come to worship you with a loud cry this morning, that we would be confident um, and comfortable in our ability to confess our sin to you this morning, to admit our weaknesses to you this morning to cry out that we need help, to beg you, Holy Spirit, to be at work in us, transforming us into the image of Jesus. Even walking through that, it feels where it sounds like that's a lot of work. And so God, I just pray, like last week, that we would surrender ourselves before you this morning that we would surrender ourselves before you in faith. God, as we walk through our time together and we transition into a time of tithes and offerings, God, may this be a time of um, continued worship. This is where we give you our stuff. This is where we relinquish the control we think we have and demonstrate the transformation that has taken place in us as a result of the Holy Spirit at work in us. God, may you be glorified. May you be made much of this morning as we continue to praise your name. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.